Hi, Ken. Hi there. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Fine, thank you. Great. So I thought a good way to kind of talk about some techniques on albums that you've worked on over the years, maybe to go through each instrument at a time and kind of talk about how your techniques have evolved and how techniques that you've witnessed other people have used evolved. Maybe if we start with the drums, what were the kind of techniques that were going on when those kind of early Beatles records that you were just like the assistant on? Was there a lot of like under miking of things rather than over miking? Very, very simple. I think if I remember correctly, it was just something like a KM56 or a 4038 overhead and then a, a D20 on bass drum. That was it. To step, as when I was an assistant engineer, that's what it was. Then it started to. I was taken off of assistant engineering for a while whilst I did mastering, and during that period, it changed because Jeff Emmerich took over, and things started to change a little then. And there were a few more mics. Generally, the mics during that period, which I started off copying because yeah we'll get to that in a minute i started off copying jeff which was i think if i remember correctly it was something like a d19 overhead a d9 it was all um, mostly all d19s and uh, still the d20 on bass drum do you remember the positions of a lot of those mics because there's a lot of things that people wouldn't traditionally do these days really and it, 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 the the problem with trying to say anything about what happened on Beatles sessions is it was changing all the time. Right. Uh, I, one of the, the greatest things for me as uh, a, a trainee engineer, the first session I ever did, the first time I ever sat behind a mixing console was on a bloody Beatles session. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. So that's why I followed on with, with Jeff's way of working because I, that's all I, I, I had to follow someone, so he'd been working with them, so it made a lot of sense to follow what Jeff did. But working with the, the one band in the world that uh, had no monetary problems, there were no budget problems for them, there were no time constraints, and they wanted everything to sound different every time that it was recorded. So I could experiment all I wanted to, knowing that uh, it, that's what they wanted. And so I got to try different mics in different positions through the entire sort of Magical Mystery Tour White Album uh, time. And that's, that's how I learned what mics I, I liked, what mics I didn't, what positions I liked, and all of that kind of thing. And following on from that, I've remained pretty damn constant all of these years, like over 50 years. It, it's much the same as I always used to. Maybe if we could talk a little bit about those kind of standard techniques over the last 50 years then. What are a lot of your go-tos, kind of Mike's techniques for drums? What I do, what I do now with drums is uh, it will be 87s on toms. It was, it, back then it was 67s, but obviously most places don't have those now, so it's moved on to 87s. Uh, overheads would still be cold 4038s, two of them. Uh, a snare, top mic, most of the time these days it's a Sony C38A. Uh, I did for a period of time use a KM56 or a KM54. And I sort of go between those or the Sony. 
but I, just recently I've, I've much preferred the Sony. The bass drum is an RE20, uh, and that's basically it. It's easy. The positioning is for snare and toms, it's off to off to the side as close as I can get it to the to the drum, aiming towards where the, the drummer is supposed to hit, which is dead center of the of the head. Uh, and that works for me. As far as under miking on a snare, I will only ever do that if it's a drummer comes in with a really deep snare. Otherwise I absolutely hate it. I get exactly what I want from from uh, top miking. Were those techniques that you started to develop working with the Beatles? Well, just the that positioning and generally the mics that that uh, I now use. It, it that all came from back then trying different mics. It, it was at that point with them. There was one time I went into uh, the the mic room with with Paul. And he wanted to try a different mic on something. I have no idea what it was these now, but he wanted to try a different mic on something. We're going around. I'm looking around at all the different mics thinking what might sound the best. He's just looking around. He says, oh, I like the look of that one. Let's use that. That, that was where they were coming from. It was at that particular time. It was the look of it was more important than the sound of it. But it was, it was experimentation all the time. Can you think of any specific examples of kind of weird mic techniques you might have used during those days? I, I'm sure there were plenty, but I can't remember any off the top of my head. Everything everything from... With piano, we would, we would mic on top with one mic. We'd, uh, we'd mic underneath with one mic. We'd, we'd just put them in different places to get different sounds, even the, the, in different places within the, the studio. Uh, moving from number two into the small room, which was right by the side of uh, number two's control room, and them all playing live, uh, vocal, live vocal as well, in this ridiculously small room. If one of them moved around too fast, one of the others would have lost their head. It, it, to, to come up with specific things that we did differently is really, really hard after all this time, because there, there were just so many things. From recording, what is it, Mother Nature's Son, the, the, the bass drum on that was recorded at the bottom of a staircase at the end of the corridor from uh, Number Two Studio. Just another one of those type of things. It was try everything. You mentioned piano there. What have kind of your, some of your standard piano recording techniques been and how they evolved into over time? It, it's gone from the, the, the single mic, uh, which... It started to be everything from a D19C through a Sony C38A through through one U67. Then once we started to get more tracks and we needed uh, and more into stereo, we needed stereo piano. So then it moved to two mics, which was 267s or 287s today, high and low. I started to have some uh, phasing problems. So the way I, I get around that is I just put another mic up the center and just use it enough to get rid of the, the phasing between two. But the way I do it these days is it will be a KM either, yeah, it'll be a, probably a KM84 uh, on the high end, then two 87s, one mid and one low end. What do you think 
kind of changed the use of dynamic mics a lot because in the 60s, obviously, they were using dynamic mics on a lot of different things, and that's kind of not very commonplace now. It, it just every, every, yeah. who knows why anything changes? Who knows why suddenly, round about the the end of the uh, mid to end of nineteen forty the forties, the most incredible talent came out of this one small island from guitars to songwriters to singers to engineers to producers. Just this massive map all just happened at once, and it, it's much the same. It. it Anything to do with music should be constantly growing and changing, and uh, the same with mic techniques and sound. And generally, what quite often happens is that something will fa phase out, something else will take over, and then after a period of time, what had been phased out now suddenly becomes in again. Uh, so I'm, sh I'm sure any techniques from back then will come back in again at some point. That's why all so many of the plugins these days, it's just emulating what we used to use back then. It, it's, they were sold dirt cheap. That one, there was that period of time when suddenly Fair, uh, Fairchild 660s, yeah, they're old hat, we don't want to use them. And they got sold off dirt cheap. Now try and buy them, it's impossible. And they're ridiculously expensive. It's, everything comes back in and goes out. And it's just cyclical. Everything is cyclical. Maybe... Moving on to electric guitar, was it often just kind of one mic on the electric on those Beatles sessions? Well, from Beatles sessions all the way through to today, one one mic on the amp sometimes will be uh, a room mic. And um, what that room mic is, I have no preference. It's just whatever's laying around generally, because the room mic ain't going to make that much difference. It's, it's to try and give a, big, a slightly bigger sound or to push the, to take some of the presence off the guitar to sync it back more in the mix. What are some of your favourite close mics? Uh, it's uh, 87. You'll hear almost everything I say is an 87. Right. It, it's, that's my favourite mic. I use it on almost everything. Would that have been a 67 then in the Beatles days? It would. And that was, it, it, it took a little while for me to, to, to get into it that much because I was trying other mics. But eventually, I, it, it, that was the one that won out every time. Do you have a standard position for it? Right in the middle. That far away. <laughs> and it's, I am so much of a creature of habit. Uh, it's everything is always the same. I, to me, the sound can't, should come from the instrument and the studio. It shouldn't come from the control room. Uh, and going back to drums for a minute, uh, a, a quick story of, about the whole thing of it coming from the, the drum kit, the instrument and the player. Uh, I was doing some sessions for the co-writer of my book and because he'd asked he was producing he said would you like to engineer i said yeah i'd love to and uh it was this hard rock band we came to the last two two numbers that we had to record and we were talking about it and it was decided we needed two completely different drum sounds for each each song the, the drummer had several different kits, so he came in the day we were going to cut the basic tracks for this with a couple of kits. We set up the first one, moved all the mics in, he played, I got the EQ, the levels and all of that kind of thing, 
got the sound that we wanted for the first number. Few takes, we got it. I pulled all of the mics back out. He moved first drum kit out, moved the next drum kit back in. I moved all the mics back in in exactly the same positions. I didn't have to change anything else. It was, we got exactly the drum sound we, we wanted for the second song. And the only thing that changed was the drum kit, nothing else. And it, it worked perfectly. And the EQ I do almost every time on, on drums, it's so close to being the same every time. Bob, Bobby Ozinski, the, uh, the co-writer of my book I was working with, he said that what he discovered uh, working with me is that I'm, I EQ for the mic, that what I consider the deficiencies of the mic, not for the instrument. I leave the instrument in the studio getting the sound that's required out there. And that, that comes from the, the whole Abbey Road, or EMI back then, situation, because the EQ we had on those red desks was so limited. You had to get the sound in the studio. And that's stuck with me ever since. I remember you saying with those EQs that you, they kind of asked you to crank the low end and top end. Was that something that was pretty common? No, it was. It wasn't common at all. It was. It was something that they requested on some of the mixes on the White Album. They just come in, okay, full bass, full treble, and everything. It's the Beatles. You don't argue. You do it, and you've heard how they sound because that's what we've been listening to for forty odd years until Giles went and did what Giles does a lot of these days. How did their use of compression kind of evolve over time? Because you can clearly kind of hear it being introduced. In some of the albums once again we were so limited back then uh, we, we had we would have uh, because we were concentrating so much on mono not on stereo it would be a single 660 and uh, a single it was the Altec compressors I can't remember what the the serial numbers are RS something or other uh, that EMI had both of which had been modified by the EMI technicians and that was it. We would tend to use the Altec. The Altec compressor we'd always use on bass, uh, sometimes on guitar, sometimes on piano. The 660, Fairchild 660 was always on vocals. Uh, with Ringo, it would be on the drum kit, sometimes on piano. That was, that was generally the way we recorded everything. And very much it was uh, doing, doing everything going into the tape machine. We had to because we were mixing things together on one track. So we had, we had to EQ everything and compress limit everything going to tape. And we'd have to do very little on the mixing, except turn full bass and full treble up when they wanted it. Were they generally using compression on everything, if possible? No. There were, for, for Ringo, it was always on the drums. For Paul, it was always on the bass. For vocals, always the, the 660. Other, other than that, guitars, everything else, it was up for grabs. Piano, up for grabs. Sometimes, it depended on what we were going for, sound-wise. You mentioned bass. I've heard quite a lot of kind of different claims about how they would record bass. Like Some people saying they used DI, some people saying they never did. What was the kind of standard or some of the usual techniques for recording Paul's bass? Uh, DI. Uh, 
I honestly can't remember what mic I finished up using with, with Paul. I know that Jeff used a C12. I may have continued. I, I'm sure I started off using a C12 for a bit. I may have moved over to a 67. I honestly can't remember. Uh, but there, there were so many different things. By the time that I was engineering with them, we, within the experimentation side, on a lot of the tracks on the, the White Album, there are two basses. There's a six string and a four string, and it's not always Paul playing. It will be Paul and someone, or it could also be John and George if uh, Paul was playing piano. And they never worked out the parts beforehand. They had a rough idea of what each of them were going for on the bass track, but they, they would vary slightly. And there, there are vocal bass parts. They're, it was all experimental. Do they ever use the amp and the DI simultaneously, kind of how you would now? Oh, sometimes, yeah. Without a doubt, we did that. Would you generally be doing them both through one compressor, or is it less? Yes. Yeah. No, through one. How did you... Did all the red desks back then have phase controls on at all, or you have to do it manually, kind of? Uh, if I... Yeah, I don't remember thinking much about phase or anything like that back then i still don't that much uh if it sounds good it's fine if it doesn't then try changing the phase it, it's uh and if it gets better fine if it doesn't then go back to what it was it, it's very simple for me i'm 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 interested in the final product what it sounds like in the end, not the individual things that go into into doing it. We've become too picky about little things. Every, every little thing has to be perfect. No, it bloody doesn't. It's the over the overall thing has to be as good as you can get it. But within that, you can have lots of mistakes. You can have bad sounds. I I always say with with guitars, I'm not a big fan of the sound of modern day guitars a lot of them, because the, the, the pickups, they're made to get rid of hisses and hums and all of that kind of thing. And b through doing that, the high outputs that they give, I find a lot of the sounds be become very similar. It's not like it used to be where you had a Les Paul would have its own sound and a Strat would have its own. They all, the originals had their own unique ability. And the problem was sometimes you'd have... Uh, extraneous noise that you don't want coming out of them but if there's a hum coming from the guitar as soon as you bring up the bass guitar as well you're not going to hear that hum as long as the guitar tone is what you're after it doesn't matter if there's something below that if there's hiss bring the cymbals in bring the overheads in you're not going to hear that hiss unless it's a an absolute solo instrument all of that, that added noise all of that kind of thing it's bullshit it, it you never hear it that's my opinion, anyway. I know there are a lot of people that would disagree. With the Beatles experiment with kind of changing around guitars, what type of guitar they were using, and yeah. those sort of things. It, 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 <laughs> they were using lots of different guitars, lots of different amps. It was whatever they finished up deciding sounded the best for that particular track. There was no rhyme or reason to any of it. It was just... They pick up a guitar, start playing something. Now that one's not right. And try something else, which goes along with that. Getting the sound in the studio. They weren't asking us upstairs. 
I have to use this guitar and amp, but I want it to sound totally different, change it. it, it they, they would be getting the sound that they wanted to a point in the studio. Just going back to the sort of bass recording a little bit, were the mics generally quite far from the bass cabinets? Because that's what I've seen Jeff do. Not really. Right. Not, not, not that far. I, these, these days, if I'm using a mic, I tend to use uh, DI more than I do mic. Uh, but if I'm using a, a, a mic on bass, it's almost a, a, exactly the same as uh, I do for guitar. It's the same distance, same position, and the same mic, the 87. Is that what you would have been doing on the kind of Bowie and Lou Reed, Elton John records? Yeah, it's... Uh, they were... Elton was... In this, I, I thought that it was always a DI, but listening to some of the multi-tracks, you can hear piano and everything coming through on the bass track. So obviously I used the mic for some of it, but I don't, when I did what, I'm not, I don't know. Uh, as far as Trevor on uh, the Bowie stuff, once again, I, I think it was all DI and listening to multi-tracks on that. I haven't heard anything else bleeding through. So that further enhances my, my recollection that it was just DI. Did a lot of these people care, you were saying they kind of cared about how the mics looked rather than how they sounded, did any of the Beatles or Bowie or anyone have favourite mics for their maybe like vocals, did they care what you were using? It was whatever I chose to have them sing through. Did they ever ask to like change the microphone or change the position? Not that I remember. Maybe with the Beatles, just because of all the experimentation. But uh, other than that, no, it was pretty much pretty straightforward. It would always have been. Uh, well, when I was at EMI, Abbey Road, it would have been 47, would have been the main one to go for. Uh, but Trident, which would have been... and and from the, my time at Trident, uh, it would either have been a 67 or uh, a C12A and then 414. Did your kind of techniques and EQing change when you went to Trident and there were more, presumably more, different outboard things available? No, it, the EQ on the board was a little more radical, just a little. You could, uh, it, it, you'd hear it work more than you would on the, the red desks. The red desk EQ was very smooth. That's how you could get away with putting full bass and full treble on and not have it sound ridiculous. The sound technique board at uh, Trident when I first went there, which was an amazing, amazing board. The, the amount of stuff done through that one mixing console from its being in the studio uh, initially and then being moved up to the mix room. So it was part of the, all of the, the work at Trident for many, many years. Uh, that had a little more EQ. You could actually choose uh, where you added or, or cut the EQ, but it was still on the, the, the low end. You only had two frequencies that you could choose between. You could only do one of the two. Uh, the, the high and mids, you had the choice of, of one out of seven. Uh, so it, it, you still didn't have that much control. Uh, we had in, this, in the studio, we had one... Uh, parametric equalizer i'm trying to think who made it it's escaped me for the moment and you had 
I think there were three compressors, a Yuri and a couple of LA-2As, if I'm not, not mistaken. So it, it and the, the, mic, the, the mics they had were pretty much the same as, other than the 47s, everything else was pretty much the same as an EMI. What was your standard vocal mic for David Bowie? Either a, a 67 or a 414. Uh, or, I say 414. Back then it would have been a C12A. Uh, there's a, there are some pictures taken at uh, Chateau Derreville when we were doing pinups that showed David singing into one of those. And whether I used that for all of the vocals or not, I'm not sure. But it, the two vocal mics I would have gone for would have been either a 67 or a four, four, or C12A. Was that the same with Elton John? Yes. I did, I did, I did for a while go through setting up two mics. It, would, it was always a, either a 414 or a C12A and a 67 or 87. And I, I, I put them sort of like that. Uh, 90 degrees to each other, have the singer sing directly in between both of them. Uh, and I could mix them however I wanted to, use one or the other. For a while I thought it cut back on pops and things like that, but eventually I sort of gave up on that and now it's just one mic. Do you remember what vocal mic you would have used with Lou Reed? Would it have been 67? It would have been the same. It would have been the same. As I say, creature of habit. I've always been a creature of habit. I find something I like. I go, I go out to a restaurant. If I've been there before and I, <laughs> I've had something I like, guess what I'll have at the restaurant the next time I go there? The same thing as I liked last time. I think one of the instruments we haven't talked about is acoustic guitar. I've seen kind of a lot of pictures of that varying a lot with the Beatles. Do you remember some of the standard mics you would have used with them? D19, D19C. Uh, we used fairly frequently. The, the, if you know the track uh, Long, Long, Long on uh, the White Album, the ending has this weird scraping sound on it, and that is George actually grabbing the D19 and using it to scrape up and down the strings. Uh, that's how I know on that one it was a D19. Uh, let's see, 67, C12, then a Trident C12A. Uh, if I remember correctly, we might have used uh, the Sony C38 on occasion at, at uh, EMI on acoustic guitar. We used the, the the Sony was. It's an interesting mic. It sounds good on a lot of things. Uh, it, it's yeah, it sounds good on a lot of things. It doesn't sound great on a lot of things. But it, we used it. It was a great general purpose mic. We'd use it on piano. We'd use it on acoustic guitar. We used it on brass. Just And obviously snare, eventually, I, I was using it on. Uh, so it's quite possible we used that on acoustic guitar at times. Do you remember the positioning you might have used? Would have varied. Would have varied. Just depend on what we we're after and what was being played. Do you have something that you kind of might try first now, like a? It's 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 very strange. It's <laughs> I don't know if I can actually describe it. It's angled down, uh, and it's very close to to where the 
the pick's going to hit the, the strings, but it's angled down so hopefully I get slightly less of the, the, the bass strings. So I always find I have to roll off a lot of low end on acoustic guitars. Maybe it's just because of the, the type of acoustic guitar sound I like, but uh, for me, the best acoustic guitar sounds I've got was when I owned my own acoustic guitar. It was a uh, Gibson Dove, which was amazing. Guitarists didn't like playing it because it had the heaviest gauge strings that Gibson made on it. So, uh, but once once they played it and then heard the sound on it, that made it a lot easier for them, no matter how painful it was. That that was really good. I love heavy strings on on acoustic. Most guitarists don't like that, so uh, it doesn't happen very often. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very strange what, the way I place mics, but uh, it's what I do. I've been thinking recently about because how all the Beatles albums have quite a kind of unified unified aesthetic between the same album, but then it kind of changes quite a lot between different albums in terms of the frequencies and like the clarity and things like that. For example, Rubber Soul. It's a very sort of clear low mid, and it's very, it's quite bright. And then you go into Revolver; it's much more mid-rangey, kind of thicker low mids. Do you think there was a particular reason why it kind of changed generally between albums? Number one, engineer. But <laughs> Norman Norman Smith, the engineer for the first six albums, was always trying to change the sound. But he could only do it to a certain extent because of rules that EMI had, and uh, it was still only four track at that point. There was no bouncing between four track machines or anything like that. It was we had four tracks. When it when Jeff took over, he had uh, a different set of ears, so he would have been doing things differently. He chose to use slightly different mics to Norman, although a lot of, at least in the beginning, a lot of them were exactly the same. Uh, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if one of the reasons for that, that change was the amount of four to fours that suddenly started to be done on revolver. Uh, so obviously each time you copy across, you're going to lose some of the, the, uh, the clarity, no matter how we managed to do it a lot of times and it should have been a lot worse than it was. But thanks to the, the amazing uh, techs at, at Abbey Road, that they kept the standard up for us with them. But, uh, yeah, we would have lost a bit each time we did it, and we were doing it a lot. Would you be using anything on the whole mix bus, then, in terms of processing? We, the only thing that we would have put across the mix bus would have been the uh, Altec compressor. We would sometimes use use one of those, but as I say, that that's thinking. All we were, primarily all that we were thinking about was mono. So whenever I, I talk about that, it's it, it will be just be the one thing. Uh, I'm sure we probably did the same when we came to stereo mixes, but uh, they they were just they were almost throwaway anyway. So. Uh, And up to up to the White Album, the, the stereo mixes were done so much later, and they are so different to the uh, to the mono mixes which the Beatles had okayed. Uh, no, no one particularly cared what they sounded like, in all honesty. 
I did that. I have this this great thing that I use in some of my talks. It's she's leaving home, and I've I've edited between the mono and stereo mix because they're in different tempos and different keys because they forgot to put the uh, very speed on when they did the stereo mix, and it is very disconcerting hearing the complete change in key. And uh, but people, we didn't remember what we what we did, and then what when we came to do stereo, because it was so much later. Did the Beatles supervise the stereo mixes for the White Album? Uh, they, they were more interested in them at that point, yes. Uh, there's a, memory is, is quite amazing, I have come to learn. There's, uh, I, for years, have had this story about uh, the stereo mix of Helter Skelter, which, in talking with Chris Thomas... Uh, he has a completely different story of, of the stereo mix of, of uh, Helder Skelter. But I'll tell my story. That is that we've done the mono mix. We're in number three studio. Uh, we, we did the mono mix, and then we were going to do the stereo mix immediately afterwards. And we, we come to the end of it, and I start to fade out exactly the same way as I did on the, the mono I hit the bottom, and Paul then says, okay, now bring it back up again. Bring it back up again, slowly, slowly. I sort of look at him, what the hell is going on? I, I bring it up, bring it up. He said, okay, yeah, that's good. Now start to fade it down again. I fade it down again. I get it down, and he says, okay, now bring it up quickly. And I bring it up, and it's just in time for I've got blisters on my fingers. I turn to him and say, what, what the fuck was that, what was that about? Come on, it's totally different from mono. He said, well, we have... Uh, had lots of letters from fans about the differences between the mono and stereo. So we thought this time round we'd really make some differences and hopefully sell twice as many records. Boom, boom. All about the money. Yeah. How does Chris's story differ? He seems to remember that Paul fell asleep during the stereo mix and I went running in to get Chris in saying, come and help me, Paul's fallen asleep. And it was him that said, bring up the, the I got blisters on my fingers. But there's a, there's a certain point for me that whether we would have gone through that without the Beatles' permission, I don't know. But it, it's, yeah, we both have our own versions. Is it true that those red desks have the faders in reverse in case anyone fell asleep on no. them? No. That was the BBC had that. We Oh, there are so many. Come on, there are so many stories about EMI that are completely untrue. All engineers were wearing white coats. No, they weren't. We had to wear suits and, and good sports jackets and, and trousers. But uh, the only people wearing uh, white coats were the electronic wizards. And the reason for that is they had to set up sessions. They had to clear them down. They were uh, coiling up and all of these dirty mic cables. They would have to go into echo chambers, which were... They had all of this stuff growing on the walls and all of that kind of thing, and they had to go in there. They didn't want to get their suits dirty, so they'd wear white white coats to to keep them clean. And it, yeah, and just all of those kind of things. It's there are a lot of there's been a lot of misrepresentation. You mentioned the echo chambers. There was the only reverb that Beatles would have been using the actual real chambers there at Abbey Road. No, we used DMT plates as well. Uh, they had several plates, and depending on what we were after, we'd use one or, one or the other or both. 
Actually, I no, I'm sure we must have used both. I, I, I'm not. I'm trying to remember the red desk. If there there were two different echo sends, I don't think there were. But uh, yeah. Did you ever compress or EQ the reverb return? No. Well, what we did do, they they had this thing called Steed for the the chambers, which was send tape echo echo delay is what it stood for. And what would happen is that the echo send was split. It would go directly to the to the chamber. It would also go through a BTR tape machine, so that it was slightly delayed. That was fed to the chamber, and uh, it it was kind of fed back somehow through the the, the BTR and going back. So it it elongated the reverb from the chamber a bit. We always had that going, and one of the one of the worst things was. John always liked to have reverb on either tape tape delay or reverb on his uh, vocal in the headphones. And we're always dreading that the steed tape would run out mid-take. Just that kind of thing. We always had to watch that. Hey everyone, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tonalux and their brand new JC37 microphone. This is a clone of the old Sony C37A tube microphone designed with producer Joe Giacarelli, who was on episode 5 of the podcast. The original Sony mics were used on sessions with people like Jimi Hendrix, The Doors and The Wrecking Crew. In my opinion, these new Tonalux microphones are great for people with small studios and home studios looking to invest in one really great tube condenser mic. Unlike a lot of tube condenser microphones, these Tonalux mics are incredibly versatile, can be used on guitar amps, snare, kick drum, drum overheads, vocals, and almost anything that in a lot of situations a normal tube microphone couldn't handle the sound pressure of. And because you can get these microphones right up close to a lot of sources, they're great for recording in in-ideal spaces, which is what I do a lot of, as I have a portable recording studio. And another great thing about them is, even though they're hand-assembled in the USA, these mics are a lot cheaper than a lot of classic tube microphones as well. You can get a pair of them for the same price that you could get a single tube microphone from a lot of other manufacturers. Please visit tonalux.com forward slash product forward slash JC37 to see more information about them. Thanks for listening, and now back to the episode. Did you ever use the actual room ambience for any deliberate reverb effects? Reverb effect? Not really. Uh... On on the Beatles sessions, I honestly don't remember using distant mics that that much, especially if it were for for drums, because we were always cutting other instruments at the same time. So we would have got too much leakage of the other things. That came uh, the whole thing of using room mics for me, at least, came later when uh, when you were cutting individual instruments, or there were ISO booths where the guitar amps, whatever, were in, so you didn't get too much. Uh, pick up from other instruments. What kind of reverbs are available at Trident? EMT plates. That was it. Right. So is that what you would have been using on the Bowie and Lou Reed? And we would. I would, when necessary. Not very often because they had. If I remember correctly, they had two EMT plates: one for the studio and one for the mix room. And so quite often. You, you only had the one reverb, but at times when running late and uh, mixing late and there was nothing going on in the studio, then I might use two, two plates. Uh, but generally, which is still pretty much the same today, I would 
decide what's the most important instrument or item within the recording for the reverb. Set the reverb correctly for that and then make sure everything else worked with that reverb. Uh, I, I hate the whole, the modern day thing of different reverbs on everything. It, it's, reverb was made to sort of bring everything to, 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 just to accentuate everyone being in the same room, being in the same physical space. Uh, and having different reverbs on everything, to me, pushes everything apart, as opposed to bringing it all together. So I'm not a fan of that. You mentioned with the Beatles, them all recording together. Did, was there a kind of standard way that they would build up tracks, doing the drums and something else first, and then overdubbing? It would always be the band first, in one in one form or another. Be it uh, drums, piano, guitars, drums, bass, piano, drums, bass, guitars. It, it was all, there were always at least three things would go down. Normally four things at once, and then overdub from there, and then do a four to four and overdub more, and then do another four to four and overdub more. Were you ever particularly worried about things like leakage or anything like that, or was it more just kind of worried about if it was a problem? It was just worrying. It was thinking about the end result. Would would the sound that we get, even if there was leakage, would it work in the end? And like the, the classic one for me is your blues, which was the one we did in the small room by the side of the number two control room. And that, you, you bring up the bass guitar, and you get guitar, you get drums, you get everything coming through almost as loudly as the bass. Pull up the guitars. You had to learn to, to sort of get a blend that worked overall for it. And uh, you had no, no other choice when they're all playing in this small room loudly together. You're going to get leakage, so you just have to learn to deal with it. it, it most of the time, it shouldn't be a problem. It, I, I did one time for me, not fairly recently, that it was a problem for me. I did a mix, uh, a new mix of Life on Mars, the Bowie track, which was just lead vocal, piano, acoustic piano, and orchestra. And the, the problem was when we cut the track, even though Woody, the drummer, was in the drum booth, with the doors closed, there was still enough leakage on the piano. You could hear the drums in a couple of places. So luckily I was doing the, the mix at uh, Abbey Road. And there, they have this uh, IT guy there that devised this thing specifically for Beatles, uh, Beatles work, basically, where he could separate instruments and to, to be able to give a better stereo mix or anything like that or 5.1, which they've now moved to. But we used it. He managed to separate sort of drums and managed to pull out. Whenever you could hear the drums through the piano mic, he could, with his program, he managed to get rid of the drums there. So we, we could do it, except I think there are two snare hits that come. But luckily, David's singing at exactly that time, so you don't really hear them. Was that program developed for the Giles um, remixes? No, it was, done, it was actually done before Giles started to do anything, but Giles has certainly used it. How often would the Beatles or other people be doing live vocals along with um, kind of recording takes? Uh, 
I, I, sometimes they would, sometimes they, they, they wouldn't. I can't give you sort of a percentage or something like that. Obviously, there's enough uh, video showing that uh, Hall did the vocal live with uh, For Hey Jude. Uh, I remember the first session that I ever did was your mother sh a, a remake of Your Mother Should Know from Magical Mystery Tour. And Paul sang when we were doing, doing that. My understanding is that John sang live on uh, Day in the Life. Uh, so yes, sometimes they they did. Sometimes we kept the vocals. Sometimes they didn't, and we would overdub later. When you were overdubbing them, did John and Paul have kind of different approaches to recording vocals? As in, would they prefer to do it all the way through and just do a bunch of takes, or do it more slowly? And would they have the lyrics finished, or you know? It was it was generally all the way through and punch for for bits that didn't quite make it, and it would sometimes it would take several takes. Uh, sometimes it would be very quick. But uh, the, the, the approaches that were, were probably different was that Paul was more the perfectionist. He wanted to, to get everything right, so he'd probably do it more. And John, John, hating his voice, he wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible. That's why ADT was Invented, I'd have to say, by Ken Townsend, the maintenance guy at the time at Abbey Road, uh, because John didn't want to have to sing twice to, to double track something. Was that still being used on the White Album? Oh yes, a lot, absolutely, but not necessarily for just for double tracking. It was because from from that invention, for what a better way of describing it, we we also got phasing. On things, and uh, when John one day went and and messed with it, and everything the pitch was changing on on whatever was going through it at that time, uh, he called it flanging, and that that term still stands for exactly the, what we did back then. And there's a lot of the, the flanging, more so on uh, the White Album than there is just ADT, but the. One of the examples of that was uh, Eric Clapton when he he played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. He said he would only do it uh, if he were to sound more like the Beatles. He didn't want to sound like Eric Clapton coming in and playing with the Beatles. So he wanted a Beatles sound. And one of the things was, was flanging it. And uh, it was on, at some point or another, it finished up on the same track as the organ. And so when, when it, he, his guitar's being flanged, you hear the organ changing pitch as well. At, at, at times it can be a little unnerving, but uh, it all adds to the effect. Were they still doing manual doubling of instruments as well, or okay. our vocals? Did they, did they do doubling vocals still manually? Oh, they did. Because it, it's ADT is good... But it's an effect. It's not. It's not real. And there, there. It's they. At times wanted the effect. At times they wanted real. So. Could you talk a little bit about your kind of transition from just engineering with David to producing his albums? Kind of how did your role differ as you became the producer? 
I went through the thing of uh, which a lot of engineers go through, where you'll be sitting there and you'll suddenly get an art, let's call it an artistic idea. And you say to the producer, you know what would sound great here? In the behind this guitar solo, it'd be great to have a herd of trumpeting elephants. The producer thinks about it, he pushes the button down, says to the guys, you know what, let's, let's try a herd of trumpeting elephants underneath that guitar solo. Oh, okay, if you, if you think it'll work. Elephants come in, you record the, the trumpeting. It doesn't work. Now, because it doesn't work, the button goes down. It was, oh, well, it was only Ken's idea anyway. I didn't think it would work, but I thought we should try it. If it worked, the producer took the credit. And as an engineer, you eventually get fed up with that. And you want, I particularly wanted more. If I came up with something, I wanted to be the one to, to put it out there and see if it worked or not and take credit if it did work. Uh, so, and engineering was just becoming, as I say, I'm a creature of habit. So the engineering was becoming very much the same all the time. And it was becoming boring. It was too easy for me. So I just wanted to have more say in the recording. So, at the, I had engineered a lot of the Space Oddity album and uh, Man Who Sold the World with David and uh, Tony Visconti producing. And David, uh, after the lack of success, David gave up for a little while. He came in to produce a friend of his. And because I'd worked with David before, I was put on the session as the engineer. And during one of the tea breaks, we were talking and... He said he was about, he just signed a new management deal. They wanted to put him into the studio to record an album for them to chop a deal for him. He was going to produce it himself, but he didn't know if he was capable of doing that. Would I co-produce it with him? So I, I leapt to the chance. It was exactly what I wanted. And uh, to me, I think that the, the, the transition from Tony to me was, was very much, David had, a lot of ideas. The the one song that his ideas had really been used was Space Oddity, which was a track that Tony refused to record. He hated it. Gus Dudgeon, who I learned a lot from uh, as a producer, he went with David's ideas and uh, it proved successful. Then the rest of the stuff was done with, with Tony and Tony, in all fairness, uh, He's the bass player. He was the arranger. He was all of these things. And David really didn't have that much to do with the recordings. They were his songs. He sang them. Boom. That was it. From what I saw in the studio anyway. And they weren't successful. So David wanted, I think David needed to sort of put up or shut up. And he wanted his ideas to come through more. He, having worked with me, on the two albums, I think he knew that I came from the, the George Martin, the Gus Dudgeon school of production, which is an artist is put into the studio for one reason, and that's to create. And you have to allow the artist the freedom to create. He knew I would do that with him, allow his ideas to come through and work with him on, on his ideas. And so he chose to, to work with me, and it proved successful for the four albums. Was David the one who asked you to work on Transformer? Or was it more just that because you were working at the studio at the time? It, it, 
I think it was more just because I was working with, with David at that time anyway, so I just put on the sessions. I was still, I think I was still officially an engineer on, on the books of Trident, but it was, that was really close to the end. Does anything stick out in your memory about working on that album? <laughs> uh, other than the fact that the the main vocalist was uh, may have been there physically, but certainly wasn't there mentally. Uh, other than that, it w- it was a David Bowie session, as far as I'm concerned. There was there was very little difference uh, between doing a Bowie album and doing Transformer. Was it David then arranging all the musicians and I guess Mick Ronson as well? And uh, yeah, and, and Ronno, yeah. And did Lou not really have anything to do with the arrangements or? Was uh, no, it was it, he would teach the song to to Ronno, then Ronno would teach it to the session musicians, and we'd come up with it from there. Uh, like Walk on the Wild Side, we, Herbie Flowers, the bass player, the the uh, basic track was recorded with him playing with an upright bass. He came up to me afterwards and said, can I put another ba- uh, bass guitar on it? And he started to explain the idea. I said, oh, hang on. <laughs> I can't say yay or nay. Go speak with David. He went to David and explained it. And David said, sure, let's try it. And that's what finished up being the, the one of the biggest hooks to the whole song is that, that bass part and the, the two basses. It, it was amazing. So a lot of it was also left up to musicians to come up with their own things. Do you remember the process of getting, did they get, um, so that kind of New Orleans type band come in for one of the songs? And It was with Herbie. Uh, Herbie brought in musicians that, that he knew. David had worked with Herbie on Space Oddity. He was a bass player on it. So David knew Herbie quite well. And... Uh, Herbie was, he was one of, if not the sort of most popular uh, session bass player around at that time in England. And so he, he knew everyone and well-versed musically. So if David wanted a New Orleans jazz band, Herbie, can we, can we get that? And Herbie would, yeah, I'll make a few phone calls. And because I think Herbie played with the, the band, the musicians that came in, because Herbie played tuba on that. That was Goodnight Ladies, wasn't it? Yes, I'd, I'd gone blank on the name when I... Yeah, that's it. Does anything stick out about working on All Things Must Pass? Just working with George. Just uh, one of the funniest people I've ever met. Uh, he was, and one of the nicest. It was just... Uh, yeah, just great to... to work with him to, to get to know him. And I was, I was blessed to, to spend a lot of time with him before his, just before his passing as well, which uh, was absolutely astounding. But with, with regard to all things must pass, one of the things that we were working on at that time was uh, the, re, the reissue of, of, I think it was the 30th anniversary or something like that of, of all things must pass. And it may have been the first time it was on CD. So we sit down in uh, George's studio in Henley Pond Thames. We put on the stereo master tape of All Things Has Passed. We start to listen to it and we just look at each other and burst out laughing. And it was the same for both of us. Firstly, it was here we are 30 years on 
sitting in exactly the same positions as we were before, listening to exactly the same music. It was ridiculous to us at that, that point. But then the other thing was how bad we thought it sounded with all of the reverb and all of that. Both of us would have loved at that point to have, to have remixed it without all of that reverb, get rid of a lot of the spectralization of it. But uh, we weren't allowed to by the record company. We had to just, and hopefully that won't happen. I, I, I hear whispers every now and again how true they are or not. I don't know that it's going to be remixed without all of that. And to me, without George, there it, it should not be done there were things on the white album that uh, were in giles's mixes that i know george would have hated there were bits left in that george purposely had pulled out but giles decided to leave them in it, it's without without the artist there i don't think i don't think it should be done anything should be touched but at least let them have the approval don't do it when they're dead but that's me. But no, it was it was just amazing to work with him. How present was Phil Spector on those sessions day to day? Not very. When I was working with George, he was there for all of the uh, basic tracks, which were cut at uh, Abbey Road with a great engineer called Phil McDonald, who did a lot of uh, Abbey Road. He went on to work a lot with with John, and then also with, with, he did a lot with George after All Things Was Passed. So, Abbey Road at the time was still 8-track. It was obvious very early on that uh, they needed more than 8-tracks. So, once they cut the basic tracks, George came over to Trident, and we were 16 by then. So, we just transferred everything over to 16-track and started the overdubs and then mixed. Now, Phil wasn't there for any of the overdubs. He'd gone back to the States. We'd get a note from him every now and again uh, with his, some ideas. Then when it came time to mix, the way that would come down is that uh, George and I would start sort of one, two o'clock in the afternoon, get a mix going, getting it close to where we thought it should be. Phil would come in at some point during the evening, listen to where we'd got. He'd pass some comments, some of which we would go along with, some of which we wouldn't. He'd leave and we'd complete the mix. George would go, I'd set up for the next day. We'd come in about one, two o'clock in the morning in the same process. We'd get a mix together. Phil would come in, pass comments, go, we'd finish it. So very little on, on as far as I'm concerned, working on, on the project. When was what you called the spectralization, the kind of reverbs and everything, were they added during tracking or was that a mixing thing? Yeah, it's both. There was a lot because things were mixed together because it was only eight track. Uh, reverbs had to be recorded live on on uh, some of the things, and then we would add more if we had individual things. Uh, we'd add more on the mix. Did you record the? Um, guess what was coming out now is the All Things Must Pass demos, where it's just George Ringo and the bass player. Did you record those? I didn't record them, no. Right. They were done with... Uh, are, you, are you referring to all of the ones, all of the songs, almost all of the songs that he recorded on All Things Was Passed, or are you talking about the five demos that uh, George did whilst recording the White Album? Um, I think, well, there's an album that came out recently 
with a lot of acoustic with a lot of just demos that were done near the time of all things must pass i think okay so yeah i know which one that is yeah no i didn't do that that was done at uh abbey road by phil i believe but it, it's the reason i asked about the the, the two there's a there's a great book out that uh, details every recording session uh, that the Beatles did by Mark Lewison. Yeah, yeah. I got that. I got that when it first came out, and I'm going through it and I'm thinking, this is really good. This, I, wow, someone's actually got it together. This is really good. I got to the White Album part and. Uh, Actually, I may have gone straight to the White Album part, I don't know. Uh, going, going through it, and I, I see this one story about my recording five demos with George on his birthday because the other Beatles didn't turn up. Now, my reaction at that time was, I never did that session. That's bullshit. And I just tossed them. This is just like one of the other books. They have no idea what's going on and kind of tossed it away. Didn't think about it until much later. I'm working at uh, George's, I'm going through the tape library because one of the, one of the things that I had to do with George when I was working with him before his passing was find the originals of every bootleg that had been put out of George's material because George wanted to put it all out officially. Uh, so I'm, I'm going through everything, I'm going through his tape library and I suddenly come across the tape of the five songs that Lewison had said I'd recorded and there in the bottom right hand corner, KS, my initials, which are always put on there. I thought, my God, I'm going mad. I did actually do the session. I was completely flawed because I had no recollection of ever doing it. found that. I'm back in LA talking to uh, a friend of mine, a gentleman by the name Brian Keyhue that was one of the two writers of recording the Beatles. Once again, another amazing book. Uh, and I tell him the story about it. He gets back to me a couple of weeks later. He says, you know that, those demos that you did with, with George? I said, yes. The, you mean the ones I don't remember? He said, yes. And he said, I was just talking to one of the maintenance guys at Abbey Road uh, that was there at that time. And I just happened to mention about that. And he said, no, Ken didn't do it. I did it. And Brian said, what do you mean? He said, well, we weren't allowed to, to engineer sessions. We were the electronics guys. We couldn't do anything else. But George wanted to record these five demos. There was no one else around to do it. So I did them. But I couldn't put my name on it. So I put, Ken was working with him at that point. So I put Ken's initials on it. So it turns out that both I was completely right and Lewison was right because he saw the tape and it had my initials. So he, it looked as if I did it. But my memory hadn't failed me so that's five songs but then there was the, the stuff that he did actually for Spectre those other demos he did specifically for, for Spectre and uh, yeah it's gen most of them are just him and acoustic aren't they but uh, but that bootleg has been out for a long time were those demos the earlier demos are those the ones that are released on the anthology albums or are they yet to be released you know, I, I'm not sure what was used on that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. You mentioned the Recording the Beatles book. Is that something that to you is very accurate about what happened at the time? It's as accurate as one can be. Uh, Brian and Kevin. I, 
my initial introduction to, to Brian well before the book was was ever finished uh, I got I was living in LA at the time and I got an email and it was from this guy called Brian Keyhue. He would like to interview me about the recording of the Beatles at that time. Now, oh, God, another one. Ah, oh, what the hell, I've got nothing else to do. I'll do it. So I went and met with Brian. And I knew within sort of three or four questions that he knew more about Abbey Road and what went on than I did. He had spoken to everyone around and gone through paperwork and all of that kind of thing. Now, he was originally doing the book on his own. But then... He got a phone call, the same guy that, that engineered those demos, he got a phone call from him uh, saying, you know these questions you've been asking me about the recordings? Yeah. Well, I just had a phone call from a guy in Texas asking me exactly the same questions. He's doing a book as well. You might want to talk to each other because you're both coming at it from exactly the same direction. That was Kevin Ryan. And they spoke and finished up doing the book together. They get, they do it, they work very well together. And, uh, yeah, that book came out, and just I know the amount that uh, both Brian and Kevin do trying to make sure that what they put in that book is as close to one hundred percent true as possible. Going, it's if one person tells the story, it's not true. It needs at least two, hopefully three, and maybe even some paperwork to back it up. Then it's true. So. Uh, yeah, as, as close as one can be with talking about recording at that time with the Beatles, because as I said, it was changing constantly. Uh, they, they've done a damn good job. What was your role in recording Imagine? Because I know there were quite a few different sessions that kind of came together for that album. I did very little. If I don't think I actually did anything on the album in the end. Uh, I did a session at uh, John's place. In the afternoon, we did a, a Yoko track, which went very well, amazingly enough. Then in the evening, we were doing one of the tracks for Imagine. It was, uh, I don't want to be a soldier, Mama. I don't want to go to war. Uh, and John taught it to the musicians. They, they did some uh, white powder before they went into the studio. They went in the studio, did a take. It wasn't very good. They came in, listened to it, and, oh, I know what this needs. Some more white powder. They went out again. It was worse. And I think I remained for another couple of takes and then said, sorry, guys, I've got an early start in the studio tomorrow. I've got to leave. And that was the last time I ever saw John. So that was my only sort of dealings with Imagine. And... Uh, it wasn't necessarily a, a pleasant one. Did some of the other people you've worked with have any particular kind of ways or rituals about recording vocals? Maybe David Bowie, did he have any particular techniques? Again, was it just going through the song and then replacing bits? And... He, he would, it's one take, beginning to end, nothing. On 95% of the stuff, on the four albums I co-produced with him, 95% of the vocals are first take. Beginning to, I'll get the level, Go back to the beginning, hit record, and whatever he sang that first take through is what you still hear today. He was the ultimate performer in the studio. But it's because of that he got very bored in the studio when, with other people. If they were taking too long, he no, forget it, we'll move on. Because he was so quick. He knew exactly what he wanted to put across, and there was no messing around. Were you doing a lot of 
riding the vocals on the faders with him or with the Beatles? Always. If not, not so much on recording, but on, on the mixing end. I now teach at Leeds Beckett University and I get to listen to what a lot of the students do. And of course, they're doing most of it in the box. And you can't, it, it's very difficult to control vocals if you're doing it all in the box. And my, my complaint 90% of the time is that they will set the vocal level for one part of the song. And then as the arrangement changes, the band will get louder, the voice is too quiet, or the band will suddenly get much quieter. And the vocal is too loud, but they're not playing with it. I, I, that's one of the most important things for me in a mix, is being able to look after the vocal, make sure that every bit that needs to come through, comes through the amount it needs to. Always taking into consideration that you're th I'm thinking of the, the total overall thing. And there are times when other things need to be a little more powerful than the vocal. But it, it's, no, I'm, I'm playing that vocal all the time. Does anything come to mind with Elton John recording vocals? Uh, once again, it, just the ultimate professional. It, was, it wasn't first take, but it was very quickly. And then we might have to go in and punch a couple of things. But it, it was, that's why I've had the career I've had. I've worked with such talented people. I've had to do very little. It's just, uh, I turn a couple of knobs, push up a couple of faders, and then my feet go, go up on the desk, and uh, they do all the work. It's great. Been a great life. I'm sure. <laughs> was that the same with Lou Reed, or was he a bit more um, difficult to... <laughs> no, it was, look, he, he was... He he was actually there for the mixes. He never said a word. He just sat there. Uh, he, he, yeah, he was someplace else in his head. I don't know where. A couple of weeks after finishing the album, it was my wedding anniversary. And my wife and I went to a Chinese restaurant that was fairly close to, to Triton. And we're in there eating, and suddenly a whole bunch of guys from RCA, uh, David's and Lou's record company, came in. And they saw me, and all came over, because I knew them all, and all this. And they said, oh, we've got someone you'd love to meet. They said, Lou, come here. And Lou Reed was with them. He came over, and he had absolutely no idea who I was. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. We'd been working together. It must have been for a month, side, just a couple of weeks before that. So I think that says where his, his brain was at at that point. I think I've heard you mention before, also you recorded a few things with Pink Floyd. Was that during your time at Abbey Road? Yes. That was, uh, I did the, the last project with, with Sid, which was a single Apples and Oranges and Paint Box. And then I did the first, I remember doing the first couple of sessions uh, on the, the first project with, with Gilmore. Uh, the one I remember is Corporal Clegg. Now, that, that's the only song I remember doing with them, but according to paperwork, I did, I did actually do more with them than just that, but I, don't, I have no recollection of those sessions. 
one of the things, as I as I mentioned, I now teach at uh, the Leeds School of Arts, which is through Leeds Beckett University, and one of the things that I'm there for and I try and do is teach this next generation what it used to be like, why the records that we did back then are still so popular 50 years on. And it, a lot, so much of it is to do with real performances and not going for that perfection. It, it's, it should hit you, it should hit you up here, <laughs> you know, in, in, deep down in, in your, your soul, uh, music should not. Some of it's for the head, but it, it's more, it should move you. And that's why with, with David, his, his vocals aren't perfect. Uh, but they are they they are real they are they move you i in, i give talks other than just at the university i give give talks all over and normally at the end of uh the main talk i will play the ending of five years from the ziggy album and by the end of of that vocal David was bawling his eyes out. Tears were pouring down his face. There was so much emotion in it, in that performance. And it, that doesn't come through. I, I said about the mix, and sometimes things need to be a little more powerful than the vocal. I determined when I was mixing that that it, it needed to be big. So the, the, the vocal was down. You, you didn't hear everything with the vocal that you could do when it's on its own. So what I put together is... The ending starts off with the, the actual mix. And then I fade out everything except for acoustic guitar and David's vocal so the audience hear the emotion that he gave. And almost every time, some of the, the audience have been in tears by the end of it because it is so moving. And that's what we need to get back to. Not the, well, I'll only sing the chorus once because uh, you can just copy and paste it. All of that kind of thing. It's bullshit. It really, we have, we have let technology take us over. Uh, we're not in control of it anymore. It controls us. Uh, all of those kind of things. Auto-tune. I've never used auto-tune in my life, and I won't. It's if they can't sing it properly in the first place, then they shouldn't be in there, uh, is, is my whole thing. So I, I'm at the university to try and push that kind of thing a little bit more than they, they see on the Internet all, all over the place. And with, with you talking with people like Al Schmidt and, and us old-timers, hopefully that will get across a little more to them and, uh, rather than the, oh, you have to use this plug-in to get a great bass drum sound. No, you don't. You just need a good drummer, a good bass drum, and a good mic, and that's it. That's all you need. Yeah, I'm especially interested in talking to kind of people from your generation and our generation just about, because there's quite often, with some people, there's not a lot of interviews about how are they actually going to conduct sessions and things like that? And a lot of very important things that I haven't really heard them talk about too much. Because it's, it's why I'm interested in, because I, I specialise in recording bands, kind of live, you know, all playing together and doing all that sort of thing. So it's, a lot of the questions I ask people are relative to what I do, and it's about, you know, working with all these things and working with bleed and that sort of thing and getting yeah. getting great performances. That, that's the main thing. It's, it's performances. It, 
what sells records, or at least what used to sell records, and I think why they're still so popular now, is it's the song and it's the performance. The rest is all bullshit. It's, I've heard some great, amazing sounding records that have never sold a bean. Uh, I've heard some terrible sounding records that have sold a huge amount. The sound, yeah, it's nice. It adds something, but it's not the most important thing. It's the performance and the song are the two most important things. Uh, that's what's going to sell it. And so much of the, the both the song and the performance is lacking these days. I, the, all of these uh, lawsuits that are going on because people have stolen things, it, it makes absolute sense to me that they're seeing things because I've heard of so many sessions that start off, they'll bring in a drummer or, or something, and they're writing sessions where they're, they're playing old records. They say, oh, I like that groove. Okay, let's try and work something around that. And they're actually basing the, what they're doing on old songs. Of course they're going to lift things from it, and it's going to sound similar. It, it's, that's not the way to write. It, 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 it comes from deep within you. Yeah. Even if initially you're calling it scrambled eggs and it finishes up being yesterday, it's, that's the way it should be written. It, it's seeing Rocket Man written in 10 minutes by, by Elton. Just, that's my bitch session for today. <laughs>